that I don't want to walk around and stuff like that. I would much prefer to be able to do that. So uh, let's get started. Uh, there are certain events that are in our lives that are so incredibly significant that, that we know the, the date, the time, and the place where we were when those events occurred. Let me give you a couple of those. Uh, for, for, for those of you in this room who are a little bit older than me, Friday, November 22nd, 1963 at 1.30 p.m. is probably a, a date, a time, and a place where you knew exactly where you were because that's the exact time that President Kennedy was assassin, assassinated in Texas. And then you get a little bit uh, down the road, Thursday, April 4th, 1968 at 9 o'clock p.m. Uh, many of you will remember that date, also the date when Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, this particular date, the next one, January 28, 1986 at 11.30 in the morning is a date that I know exactly where I was. I was a senior in college at Grove City College. I had uh, just gotten out of class and had gone to my dorm room to get ready to go down to eat lunch. I turned on the television set because I was a, a space fan and I knew that the, the Challenger was going to be launching. And as I'm watching the television, the Challenger explodes. I remember that very, very clearly. And then, of course, uh, everyone in this room, unless you're a, a relatively young person, uh, knows where you were and what you were doing on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, at 9 o'clock in the morning when all of those 9-11 attacks happened at the World Trade Center and in uh, the southern uh, central part of, of Pennsylvania and obviously in the Pentagon. But if there's one date more than any other date that is seared into my mind, one that I'm certain isn't seared into yours, but it's definitely seared into mine, is Friday, June 18th, 1976, at two o'clock in the afternoon. On that particular day, I had gathered with my mom and my dad, our extended family, which is relatively small. Uh, down here on 15th, or actually, I guess it was uh, 23rd and Derry Street. It's a building down there at the corner of 23rd and Derry Street. And uh, inside that building is a, a, a large room. And on that warm June afternoon, I was standing in front of a shiny metal box with tears streaming down my face as I stared at the lifeless body of Simon Jacob Baker, my 55-year-old grandfather. You see, on that day, death visited me for the very, very first time. And despite all of his flaws, despite his rabid alcoholism, despite his fights with, with my grandmother that seemed to happen all of the time, despite the emotional pain that he inflicted on my mom and on her two sisters, despite his partially crippled body from a Nazi bullet that he received during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, despite all of those things, he was still my grandpa. And I loved him so, so very much. And as I stood there, 11 years old, my brain could not process everything that was, was going on. I, I'm sad 
angry, afraid, all at the same time. But most of all, I was confused because no one had ever prepared me for death. Well, 44 years have passed since that day. And during those four plus decades, I have learned much about death. I've actually become intimately familiar with it. I've been with members of our church family as I've had to go down into the, to the morgue to help them identify uh, one of their children who was killed in a car accident. I stood beside husbands and wives and, and sons and daughters and, and brothers and sisters uh, as their loved one takes their very last breath. I've wept with moms and dads in the NICU as they hand over their child into the hands of Jesus. Brand new, precious, beautiful babies. I prayed with and held the hand of more people than I can count as they confronted those last few moments of their lives. There have been many lessons that I have learned over the last 20 years of pastoring Living Water Community Church, and one of those lessons is how to die well. And if there is one thing that, that all of us have in common right now, was that, that 30 minutes ago, we've now moved 30 minutes closer to our own deaths. And how we face death speaks volumes about how we actually live life. And that's what I want to show you this, this morning as we work our way uh, through the latter part of Genesis chapter 47 and look at the entirety of Genesis 48. In this section of scripture, uh, the Bible uh, presents us with a, a very detailed description of, of, of the, the days leading up to the death of that great patriarch of Israel, Jacob. And as, as we examine these, these verses, uh, we're going to discover that, that there are a, a couple things, uh, a couple attributes uh, that, that come with dying well, which we can ultimately apply to living well. And I want to give those to you right up front. The first is this, that, that, that those who die well, they believe in God's promises, they trust in God's sovereignty, and they declare God's goodness. Let me say that again. Those who die well, they believe in God's promises, they trust in God's sovereignty, and they declare the goodness of God. So in order to get started, I'd ask you to open up your Bibles or find a, your smartphone Bible app. Make your way to Genesis chapter 47. Uh, we're going to look at verses 27 through 31, and then we'll, later on we'll work our way through uh, the balance of Genesis 48. So Genesis chapter 47, verses 27 to 31, and if you're able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful, and multiplied greatly. 
And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, as, as Genesis comes to a close, uh, we see that 17 years have, have passed since Joseph, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh's number one man, has been reunited uh, with his father Jacob and all of his brothers and their families. And it's, it's during, the, during these years that they, they were there, these, these 17 years, uh, the famine which originally brought Jacob and, and all of his sons and their families back to Egypt, the famine had, had gone away, and for more than a decade now, Jacob and, and his children or his grown children that are living in, in Egypt are now prospering greatly in Egypt. And it's at this point in time, Jacob, who's also called Israel, is a ripe 147 years old, which is way old. And uh, he is facing death. He's on the verge of death. So he calls for his son Joseph he said, and, and sends for his son Joseph. And this is what he says. He says, if I have now found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying places. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. You see, Egypt was not Jacob's home. He, he was passing through there. It was a, a temporary stop on the way to fulfilling God's will. And way back in Genesis chapter 28, before he had been married, before he had children, when he was in the midst of fleeing for his life from his brother Esau, who he had stolen his birthright, God appears to Jacob in a dream. And this is what God tells Jacob. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and, you, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have promised. Now, the, the land where, where Jacob had received this, this encounter with God was a place called Luz. It's also known as Bethel, and it's located in, in present-day Israel. And it's the same land that God had promised to Jacob's grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. And in Jacob's dream, God promises that he's going to bring Jacob back to that land. 
And as such, despite all of its comfort, despite the fact that all of this prosperity exists in Egypt, Jacob knows that's not where his home is. He understands that. And so as he faces death, faces death in Egypt, death away from the land that God had promised him, Jacob calls upon his son, Joseph. And he asks him to ensure that Joseph will bury Jacob in the promised land where his grandfather and his father's bodies are. It was a land that God had promised to them. And as Jacob fears certain death, he, he uh, in, a, in a place that, that he knows isn't his, where he's not supposed to be, he chooses not only to believe, but ultimately to act upon that which God has promised, because God has promised him Palestine. Egypt's not the final destination. It's just a journey along the way. And Jacob was determined that his final resting place on earth would be ultimately amongst where his people would be, in the center of God's will. And one of the hallmarks of dying well, and one of the hallmarks of living well, is believing in having faith in God's promises. In Hebrews 11, we read this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, according to the Bible, you and I can't have faith without some level of uncertainty because faith demands that we entrust ourselves to that which we cannot see. And the Apostle Paul, he speaks to this. In Romans chapter 8, this is what he says. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for that which we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, there are many things in the Christian life that that cannot ultimately be proven, that, that they rest on faith and on faith alone. For instance, I cannot prove to you the existence of heaven and hell. I can't do that. I actually can't even prove to you the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I can make a great case for the resurrection of Jesus. I can show you the prophecies. I can uh, point you to the eyewitness testimony. I can tell you that, that, that the New Testament is the most reliable book in all of antiquity. I can tell you those things. I can show you contemporary lives that have been changed by the resurrection, but I cannot play for you a video of the resurrection. You see, much of Christian life demands faith. There's no two ways about it. Faith to believe that God is true to his word, even when our present circumstances, they seem to be completely otherwise. And that's where where Jacob is. He's about to die in Egypt, but he believes that God is going to be faithful to the promises that he made. And so he asked Joseph to bury him in the promised land. But here's what happens. For the next 400 years, God's promise of providing the promised land to the Israelites goes unfilled. And Jacob's body ultimately rests in the midst of the ungodly. 
Now all that changes when Moses decides that is called by God to, to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. All that changes. But it takes another 40 years until Jacob, or until, uh, oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm struggling here, brain fade. Who's the guy that goes into the promised land? Help me, Joshua. My brain just completely shut off there for a second. It's the wound that I have in my foot here. You know, it takes 40 more years until Joshua brings the Israelites into the promised land. And throughout the pages of the Bible and throughout the pages of history, we see that God is faithful time and time again to that which he promises. So what are some of the promises that God has made to us, men and women, who have been called by him, who've repented of our sins, and who've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What are the promises of God that we can believe beyond a shadow of a doubt? What are the promises that we can believe as we face certain death? What are the promises that we can believe as we live life? Let me give you just a few of them. The first one is this, James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see, God promises to give us wisdom if we ask him for wisdom. We don't have to go through this life. We don't have to face death trusting in our own limited knowledge. Rather, we have God's infinite wisdom available to us if only we would take the time to prayerfully call for it. 1 Corinthians 10 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear, but, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you might be able to endure in it. Here's a promise for all of us in this room who struggle with besetting sins, sins that, that seem to be so incredibly hard to overcome on our own. Any temptation to sin that we struggle with, be it lust, Greed, envy, hatred, pride, prejudice, unforgiveness, self-righteousness, any of those, when they enter our life, God always provides a way out so that we don't have to go down that path. But so many times we see that way out and we say, no, I, I want those other things. That happens in my life. I hate it when that happens but it happens in my life. And God is like, Mike, you've burned that verse into your mind 30 years ago. I always provide a way out. Why don't you take it, Mike? And God's promises are true. They're there for the taking. John 10, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one who is able to snatch, no one is able to snatch him out of the Father's hand. You see, God promises us that our salvation is secure no matter what. When we have truly repented of our sins, when we have truly received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that salvation that, that, that God has given us cannot be stripped away. Why? Because salvation has absolutely 
absolutely nothing to do with what we do or do not do, but rather it has everything to do with Jesus' completed work on the cross. It's Jesus who draws us to himself. It's Jesus who's the one who peels the scales off of our eyes and lets us see the depth of our own sin. If Jesus doesn't intervene in our lives, we go through life thinking that we're just doing fine. It's only when he peels the the scales away that we see the depth of our sin. It's Jesus who comes along and convicts us that we need to repent of that sin, and it's Jesus who empowers us to believe in him through faith. We cannot do that in and of ourselves, and it's Jesus who ultimately secures our salvation. You see, you and I can can die well and we can live well because we know that Jesus, he's the one who holds our salvation in our hand. And so when I blow it in those besetting sins, God doesn't kick me to the curb. Rather, he picks me up. He dusts me off. But he never takes his salvation away. Final promise. There's lots more, but here's, here's the final one for th- this part of the message. And I am sure of this Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You see, the good work that God has started in you, the good work that God has started in me, he's going to bring it to completion. Are we going to struggle along the way? Yes. Are we going to mess things up? Yes. Will we doubt? Yes. But God has promised he will start a good, the good, finish the good work he started in us. Folks, that is a huge encouragement to me. I have members in my extended family that I know God began a work in. And, and right now it doesn't look like there's a whole lot going on, but I know behind the scenes he is working because he has promised this. And it, and it helps me. It helps us deal with those loved ones who who love Jesus but are battling with an addiction. It helps us understand that God is at work. He will not give up. And that's a promise we need to remember. Now there's a second thing that we learn from this section of Scripture about dying well, and it's this, that those who die well, they trust in the sovereignty of God. Now in order to understand this particular point, Let me briefly address this this theological term, concept, whatever you want to call about God's sovereignty. You see, God's sovereignty, it speaks to his authority and his control over all things. It means that everything that happens, happens according to God's plan and God's intention. Now, this doesn't mean that, that we're puppets and God is like this master puppeteer. Okay, rather, God has created us uniquely in his image. And that's such an important thing. And that's the the issue with evolution that is so horrific is evolution makes us like every other animal. That's not the way that it works. God created us uniquely. We are the only creation that has been made in his image. God has given humanity and humanity alone the freedom to choose to obey him and the freedom to choose to disobey him. And as such, we're able to exercise choice and make very real decisions which affect our lives. 
Yet those choices and those decisions are ultimately subject to God's overarching divine purposes. Now, there's probably lots of different illustrations out there about God's sovereignty. I, I created one. I think it's my own special creation. I don't know. Maybe someone else came up with it. But, but the way that I try to illustrate God's creation, God's sovereignty is this. I picture God's sovereignty as a crazy wide river that, that flows for a really long way. You know, basically, you know, take the width of the Susquehanna River, attach it to the Mississippi River, and you get kind of the idea. And, and you and I, we're in our happy little boats with a paddle, and we get to navigate our way along the river. We can choose to go over to the east shore. We can choose to go to the west shore. We can go and check out an island if we want to. We can get ourselves stuck up on a, on a little sandbar. We can decide, you know what, I'm going to go down this portion of the river where over here on the right side of the river there's all of these crazy rapids because it'll be kind of cool to be in the midst of this danger and stuff. Or we can go over onto the left side, which has got a really deep, wide channel where everything is smoothing flowing smoothly, and we get to do whatever we want to do in the midst of that river, but the one thing that we can't control is the flow of the river, because it's going somewhere. It's got a direction, and all of us are ultimately going to go down that direction. Wayne Grudem, the great theologian who I just, I, I think the world of, says this, God causes all things that happen, but he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. And over the course of Jacob's 147 years, he came to understand God's sovereignty. And as he approaches death, we see Jacob trusting himself fully to it. And we're going to look at the first 20 verses of chapter 48. I, I want to read through these because I want to give you the context here. It says this, that after this, Joseph was behold, told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with his two, him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And, he was, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned up his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. And as Reuben and, Sim, as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that, are, that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by their name for their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried them on the way to Epaph, that is Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, and so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, 
I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was, born, was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all the evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth and when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim it displeased him and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head and Joseph said to his father not this way my father since this is the firstborn put your right hand on his head but the father his father refused and said I know my son I know he shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. His offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day by saying, Blessed you, Israel, or by you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God made you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. <clears throat> now there are lots of different ways that we could look at this passage. We could spend all of our time talking about blessing. That's one of the things that we could do. We could talk about the beauty of adoption where, where Jacob comes along and actually uh, elevates Joseph's two sons, his grandkids, to be at the same level as Joseph and the balance of his children. Even though they, they had an Egyptian mom and they weren't even full-blooded full Israelites. But rather than focusing on blessing, I, I wanted to spend our time here talking about the sovereignty of God. Because for much of Jacob's life, he struggles with the sovereignty of God. His very name, it means supplanter. And a supplanter is one who takes the place of another by force or by conniving or strategy. Jacob's a guy who does things his own way in his own time. He steals his brother's birthright. He connives his way into receiving the blessing of the firstborn from his father. He manipulates things in such a way that he ends up with the majority of his father-in-law's flocks. And through his life, we don't really see him praying for God's will. Instead, we basically see him taking matters into his own hands. That's Jacob. In the words of pastor and author James Montgomery Boyce, he says this, Jacob is always trusting in his own cleverness rather than waiting on God's sovereign direction of his life. And I'm wondering, does that describe any of us in this room? I mean, are, are, are we people who are like that? Do you and I, do we trust in our own cleverness? Do we spend time manipulating our circumstances so that they, they ultimately play out the way that, that we want them to, to play out rather than waiting on God's sovereign direction in our lives. And my question is, if that's what you do, because sometimes that's what I do, how in the world is that working out for you? Because I know that it never, ever, ever works out for me. Yet now as Jacob 
is finally facing death, it seems like he's starting to get it. And we see this in the manner in which Jacob blesses Joseph's children. In verse 13, we're told this, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh's was the firstborn. Joseph places his boys before his dad in the culturally appropriate position where the firstborn is going to get the blessing under the right hand, which is the primary blessing, and the secondborn is going to get the blessing on the left hand, which is the secondary blessing. And, but Joseph, Jacob crosses his hands to bless the kids opposite. And what happens here is this seems to be completely arbitrary. Uh, you know, maybe he's just an old guy and, and he's a little bit confused and he doesn't exactly know what he's doing. But, but Joseph, that's what Joseph's thinking. He's thinking like, you know, Dad, you're just getting a little too old. You don't under, understand this. And so Joseph comes and says to him, Not this way, my father, since this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Now notice how Jacob responds. I know, my son, I know. In other words, this is not an accident. I know what I'm doing, my son. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying by you, Israel pronounced blessings, saying God made you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So what's happening here? It's not the act of some senile old man. Because notice the explanation. He says, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. What is Jacob doing? He, he is speaking a prophecy. This is coming from the, the Holy Spirit. He, he is surrendering his will to bless the oldest child like he would have wanted to do. He's surrendering that will to God. Because think about it for a second. Jacob is intimately familiar with the secondborn being chosen over the firstborn. He knows all the problems that, that come with that because that's exactly what happened in his life. In Genesis chapter 25, God declared that the older, that being Jacob's older brother Esau, shall serve the younger being Jacob. And Jacob saw firsthand how his dad Isaac tried to disobey God and manipulate things so, so that his primary blessing would ultimately fall on Esau. And Jacob knew the relational pain that, that was created when, when the secondborn gets the primary blessing and the birthright. And he knew how messed up things were between him and his brother. Certainly, if he had his way, there's no way that he would curse his grandkids with the same struggles that he went through. Yet in giving Ephraim the primary blessing and his brother the secondary blessing, Jacob's choosing God's will over his own will. And in the process, 
He's dying well. Now, you know, wouldn't it have been great if Jacob would have figured this out a long time ago? Wouldn't it have been wonderful if he would have trusted completely in God's sovereignty from the very beginning? Think of all of the pain that he would have spared himself from, that he would have spared all his family from. It took Jacob well over a century of living to finally surrender to the will of God. And perhaps we should learn from his life and entrust ourselves to God's sovereignty now rather than sometime in the future after we have inflicted unnecessary pain on the people that we love. You know, it is so easy to think that we've got everything figured out, that we know everything, that we know what the right way, that, 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 that our plans and our philosophies and our view of the world and our understanding of culture and our perspective on what's going on in the news right now and our carefully thought out arguments about what's going on in the news right now and our political preferences, it's so easy to think all of those things are right. If only things go our way, everything is ultimately going to be wonderful. But then God shows up. And here's the statements that God makes. Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful, among all things, and desperately sick. Who in the world can understand it? We want to go with our heart. We want to think that we know all the right things to do, and God comes along and says, you better not trust your heart, because your heart is desperately wicked. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I never in a million years would have thought the way that I'm going to solve a sin problem is to crucify my son. Praise the Lord that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Proverbs 19, many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. You see, if you and I, if we desire to, to live well, then we would do well to entrust ourselves to the sovereignty of God and not be destroyed or angry or bitter or depressed or divisive or hurtful when things like presidential elections and pandemics and stock markets don't go the way that we want them to. We would do well to trust in the sovereign hand of God. And that brings us to the final characteristic of those who die well. Those who die well declare the goodness of God. Turn your attention back to the beginning of chapter 48. Joseph's been summoned beside the, the, the bed of his dying dad. And as he approaches Jacob, he gathers up all of his remaining strength and sits up in bed. And I have seen this happen, and many of you have seen this happen. You've got a loved one who is at the very end of their lives, and they've got something important to say, and they gather up all of the strength that they possibly have, and they sit up, and they say something incredibly amazing. And as Joseph 
approaches Jacob, this is what Jacob says. God Almighty appeared to me in love in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of people and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. What is Jacob doing? Jacob is reminding Joseph, and I believe that he's actually even reminding himself of the goodness of God over the entirety of his life. And this statement that he made here is the first part of his life. He says, here was a time in my life when God broke through time and space and revealed himself to me. And God was at work so, so long ago. And Joseph, I really didn't even realize that was happening. And then look what happens in verse 11. And Israel says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. What's happening here? This is the end. This is the other bookend. He's saying, look at the goodness of God through all of this, from way back in Luz, when I'm fleeing for my life, to right now where I came to, to try to save my life and the life of my family, never expecting to think that I was going to meet you, Joseph. And what God has done is he has not only restored you to me, but I now get to see my grandkids. Look at how good God has been to Jacob. For much of his life, he does things all his own way, using manipulatism or manipulation and favoritism to, to, to get his own way. And in the process, Jacob loses his beloved son, Joseph, for over 20 years, believing that the kid is dead. And now, through God's goodness, he not only gets his son back, but he gets extra grandkids. It's amazing how glorious God has been. So finally now, he can die with a full heart rather than die with a broken heart. It's amazing. And Jacob wants to make sure that Joseph understands the goodness of God. He wants them to know that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He wants them to know that God makes things right even when we decide to do things our own way. And he wants them to know that God's grace and God's forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. And if there is anything that Jacob can leave to his family, anything that is lasting, anything that can be passed down from generation to generation to generation, it is a living knowledge of the goodness of God. The most valuable thing in all of the world. And isn't it amazing and kind of sad that for some people, it's not until they're actually facing death that they actually come to the realization of God's goodness. And what's even more sad is there's some people that reach the end and they never, ever figure it out. May that never be of you. May that never, ever be of me. May God, in his infinite grace, might he show us his goodness. May we give our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews the blessing 
of hearing them declare how good God has been to us and how good God has been to them. Now, if you're like me, you've infested a fair amount of time trying to figure out how to provide for your families when you're gone. Maybe you've got to be 55 to start thinking about that stuff. I don't know. But this is what people do. In order to provide for their families, they purchase life insurance. We write up wills. We set up trust funds. We figure out who are, the guardians are going to be. We pay off debt. We, we gather our family members together and say, hey, when I die, I want you to get this. I want you to get that. I want you to get the, the other thing. We have spent so much time trying to figure out what in the world do we do with the physical stuff. And sadly, it's only a matter of time after we die that all of that physical stuff is gone. The money gets spent. The stocks get sold. Dad's car finally breaks down. The family house is sold to another. And all of those seemingly important things that we spent all of that time trying to figure out, they're absolutely and utterly gone. Never ever to come back. But there is something lasting something that stands the test of time. And that is the legacy of faith that we leave behind. My grandpa Baker, he didn't leave behind a legacy of faith. It breaks my heart. I have tears in my eyes right now thinking about it. I pray that God was so gracious in that final moment of his life and like the thief on the cross that he skated in by the skin of his teeth. I pray that God did that. But Grandpa Baker, he didn't leave a legacy of faith. He left a legacy of love. I knew that he loved me. But I never, ever heard him tell me about Jesus. I never, ever heard him tell me about the goodness of God. But what I do know is that God's goodness decided to save me in 1994, decided to save my mom and dad. And my mom and dad can testify to my kids, and I can testify to our kids, the incredible goodness of God. And I know that, that, that my boys right now, and, and, and Nicole in process, they're going to be able to testify to the goodness of God. And may that be the most important thing for every one of us sitting in this room right now. May that be the thing that we strive for more than anything else. That we're able to come alongside of our family and let them see with their eyes and hear with their ears how incredibly good God has been to us. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you uh, for who you are and for what you have done, are doing, and will do in the future. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that, Lord, you would uh, 
Uh, Lord, enable us not only to die well, but to ultimately live well. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to trust in your promises, even when it seems like they're, they're not happening, to know that you are still at work, dear God. I pray that you would help us to trust in your, your sovereignty, that you are at work in this world, that you have a plan and purpose, even in the midst of, of, of chaos, in the midst of uh, in crazy elections, in the midst of a pandemic, and in the midst of all of this racial struggle and all this divisiveness and everything, that, that God, that you are actually at work, that there is a plan being played out for your glory and ultimately for our good. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would empower us to declare your goodness to a world that desperately needs to hear hope. God, do that in our lives. Touch the lives of those that we touch. And may you be glorified in all things. And all God's people said, amen.